Well, good morning once more. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Acts. The longer passage before us today, it's a passage nevertheless that is more instructive than it may initially seem with a main point that is clear. And that main point is that God works in every detail for the fulfillment of His Word and the restoration of His people. That God works in every detail for the fulfillment of His Word and the restoration of His people. So, after witnessing Christ ascend to heaven and interacting with these two angels that appeared afterward, the eleven disciples return from the Mount of Olives, which is right outside Jerusalem, to the house uh, that they were staying in. And if they were sad to see Jesus go, Luke's last words that he records in his gospel is that they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and that they were blessing God in the temple. So they were, at this point at least, excited about what was going to happen. What was going to this happen in, in the, the next phase of Christ's ministry, that is his heavenly ministry. It says they were staying there in the upper room. It says they were staying in the upper room in verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the other room where they were staying. It's not at all clear that this is the same upper room that the Last Supper was in. There's speculation. Oh, wouldn't that be a great fit? There's a bunch of upper rooms around Jerusalem, and we have no reason to think that it is the exact same room that they were staying in. But Luke, but, but given that Luke is going to tell us in Acts chapter 2 that almost all of these folks, and maybe literally all of them, were Galilean and therefore not from Jerusalem. Either they had family members there that were able to put them up, or they found some Jesus sympathizers there in Jerusalem that were able to uh, host them. And the 11 remaining apostles are there listed by name in verse 13. Um, and what I wanted to do just very briefly, and this is going to be very brief, is give you a memory device for trying to remember the apostles. I'm not going to go through and talk about each apostle, okay? But if you're trying to remember the names of the original 12, here is your memory device so you will never forget. Peter 5J's baptism, Okay. Peter, 5J's baptism. Peter, James, James, Judas, Judas, John, Bartholomew, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Simon, Matthew. That's it. Peter, James, James, Judas, Judas, John, Bartholomew, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Simon, Matthew. Peter, 5J's baptism. So we got Peter, 5J's baptism with a man down represented here, with the man down, of course, being Judas Iscariot. That we'll hear about in a little bit uh, shortly. So they return from this credible experience, and it says that they are together in one accord, verse 14. All these with one accord. They were unified in spirit. They were unified in purpose. There is, there is, it expresses this deep sense of being together and on the same page. And it says that they were devoted to. They were persistent in prayer. They kept on praying. It has this enduring element there. But he also clarifies that they are not alone in so doing. They aren't alone. They did go back to the room. The 11 went back to the upper room. But they're not alone. Verse 14. They are there together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And so he says that there are really three parties 
represented there in addition to the 11 apostles. The women. We don't know exactly which women Luke is talking about here, but Luke, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts, he loves to talk about the women involved in the ministry. He names them multiple times. We're going to see multiple examples of it in, in moving forward in Acts. Uh, certainly there are women who witnessed uh, the risen Lord. Um, we can't be certain exactly which women he is talking about here. And there are likely even more women that Luke does not name in either his gospel or Acts that were present here. But the women is this first group. Then you have the mother of Jesus, Mary together with them. What a tender and perhaps even interesting dynamic to have Mary there among the twelve, praying together with them, being in one accord with them. This is the last time that Mary will ever be mentioned in the New Testament, right here. This is the last time you'll ever read Mary's name on the pages of the New Testament and she is together with the apostles, unified together with them in prayer. And then finally, you have the brothers of Jesus, which Mark lists as James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, who initially did not believe in Jesus. In fact, they had deep skepticism about exactly what he was doing and thought his ministry was a little bit problematic. And they're like, well, I'm, I'm, can you maybe get into your head here. And they didn't fully understand, but by, apparently by this time, they understood. Because they were in one accord. And so somewhere in between that 10-day period, between Ascension and Pentecost, Peter, who we will see takes a leading role, and we should probably expect that, uh, given something like Matthew 16, he stands up and he delivers his first speech. And you remember, we talked at the beginning, or introduction to Acts, that one-third of Acts is speeches. This isn't a very long one, but this is his first speech. Right here. He, gets, he stands up and delivers his first speech, but not before Luke tells us that the core group of people is about 120 folks. Verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. Now, were all of them in the upper room? Whew, that would have been a big Big room for a first century house. Were they in that room? Were they in some other meeting place? If you look down at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says they were all together in one place. They didn't say where. Are they in that place? We don't know. But all of them were together. They were all together, and Peter stands up and speaks to this 120-ish group of folks who would be the core group who hears Peter's speech, presumably sees the installation of Matthias as an apostle, and then they will be the initial group, this core of 120 or so folks, who receive the Spirit at Pentecost. And that cannot be overlooked. It cannot be overlooked. Of course, we're not there yet. I'm going to resist skipping ahead. It's very exciting, but I have to, you know, have to reel it in. This core 120 people will be the people upon whom the Spirit falls, these Galileans. And so Peter says this, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. 
Okay, so he addresses everyone, brothers, another great, one of the many great examples where brothers is used to explicitly address women who are a large part of this group. Okay, that's why sometimes it says brothers and sisters, right? Kind of like you guys, if you're from the north, is a male phrase. You know, guys are male, but you guys can designate men and women. Very similar to how brothers is used. He stands up with women right there and says, brothers, obviously, including the women. And he kind of makes two main points. One, he tells us that Judas and his betrayal of Christ and his fate were to fulfill the Scripture. That's one thing he says. The second thing he says, that Judas was, in fact, a bona fide member of the Twelve, and he shared in their ministry legitimately, despite his end. Okay, so so taking those in reverse order, it's very important, for reasons that we will continue to, to unpack, that Judas was a true member of the Twelve, chosen by Christ. Okay, as we've pointed out many times before here over the years, there was nothing about Judas that made everyone suspicious of him. There's no indication that when he tried to do special things, you know, lightning shot out of his fingertips instead. There's no indication that everyone in the apostle, they just didn't like Judas. He smelled bad something. Uh, uh, Judas, here, here here was the perspective of everyone gathered together there. About five and a half weeks ago, their friend, who they had ministered with for about three years, had killed the person they were all following and then committed suicide. That's their perspective. So you might think, what is going on? What is going on? This was one of the twelve. You have to imagine how some of them were feeling. How was Mary feeling? Whew. Peter clarifies that despite his wicked end, that Jesus intentionally chose the twelve of them. And he had a genuine share in that ministry. Second, circling back to the first point, he indicates that what what happened concerning Judas was in fulfillment of the Scripture spoken by the Holy Spirit. In this case, it's going to be through David in the Psalms. And Luke provides us a short interruption here, but we're about to get one of many very, very important apostolic hermeneutics lessons for understanding the Old Testament. But before that, Luke calls a a timeout. He calls a timeout for his Gentile readers. We speculated that Luke was likely Gentile. We don't know. But this certainly, this parenthesis here is without question a clarifying point for the Gentile audience, including translating the Aramaic for them. So talking about Judas, he says, Now this man, obviously referring to Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, his 30 pieces of silver, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So people in Jerusalem, they already all knew this. This is why it's a parenthesis for for other other readers. It became known to all inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadalma, that is the field of blood. The grisly details here are are similar in their graphic nature to what we're going to see in 
Acts chapter 12 with Herod Agrippa's death. He's struck down by the angel of the Lord only to be consumed by worms. There's quite a few questions here, and at least one person is wondering, so I am going to address it, but not going to spend a lot of time on it. How exactly do you reconcile the death of Judas here with the death of Judas in Matthew? The end of Matthew's gospel, after Judas throws his blood money back into the temple, he goes and hangs himself. And so there has been a lot of ink spilled trying to harmonize these two accounts. One of the most popular harmonizations is to say that he hung himself, and then because of biology and such that you probably know more about than me, of course he starts to swelling up with post-mortem whatever it is, and then the branch breaks and he falls forward and just kind of explodes. All right. Um, someone else will have to tell me how plausible that is. I don't know. It sounds like it's maybe within the realm of possibility. I've never seen anybody explode. However, uh, let me just say this. I personally don't feel the need uh, to provide a naturalistic explanation for this. I don't think we need a naturalistic explanation for the fate of the son of perdition. We are going to see a divine execution of a couple in Acts chapter 5. I just mentioned the divine execution and the graphic nature of what happened after he was dead. Dead, but then eaten by worms, both from God's hand. There's even precedent for this precedent for this in the Old Testament. So you, I don't know why we wouldn't just say that Judas hanged himself, but oh, that was that was far too clean. Jesus was nailed to a tree. Certainly Judas's end wasn't only going to have to be swinging from one. Oh no. Isn't it far more likely that in his second attempt to take life on his own terms, that God foiled his plan and instead rendered him such a horror that he would never receive a proper and honorable burial, but more importantly, that such a hellish end would stand forever for those generations, at the very least, as this graphic reminder of the fate of those who oppose Jesus. Judas hanged himself, and then God took over for an object lesson. Okay? I don't know why we wouldn't go with that. Whatever exactly happened, Luke seems to suggest that everybody knew about it. And so he wouldn't, if this wasn't historical, it would be a really bad idea to say, everybody knew about it, and here's what happened. He would be undercutting the credibility of his account right off the bat. So that's, that's what happens. That's what happens. It's very graphic. It is obviously a picture of divine judgment on Judas, regardless of exactly how you put the pieces together. And again, I don't think you have to have this purely naturalistic explanation of how his bowels burst forth and all the rest. Okay? If, if God can kill Herod Agrippa and then cause him to be eaten by worms, Judas can hang himself and then God can cause him to explode. Uh, and there, there, there's, there's precedent for that. There's that, that is within the realm of what we're even going to see in this book. So, after Luke's clarifying interruption, we get back to Peter's speech. We get back to the hermeneutics lesson that we mentioned a bit ago. Here's what Peter says. 
He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. And remember, if you back up to verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And the scripture that is fulfilled is, May his camp become desolate, Psalm 69, 25, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. Okay? This, th these events are the fulfillment of that psalm. And you might think, whoa, what exactly is going on? This is important enough hermeneutically and theologically to take a look at. Turn back with me and your copy of the scripture to Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is, is used of Jesus at least five times in the New Testament. It is applied to Jesus, probably with the most memorable example being verse 9, after he clears the temple, cleanses the temple in John chapter 2, and his disciples remember that, verse 9 of 69, for zeal for your house has consumed me. Okay? But here it is a Davidic psalm, David is a righteous man. He is being persecuted by wickedness. He's crying out in his innocence to tell, uh, asking God to judge those who act wickedly. And we read this, starting in verse 22, "...let their own table before them come a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually." Pour out your indignation upon them and let your anger overtake them. And then you get what is quoted here in Acts chapter 1. May their camp be made a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him if you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And let them not be enrolled among the righteous. That is the context for this first quotation, right in the middle of this Davidic psalm. Turn with me quickly then to Psalm 109. Psalm 109. Psalm 109 has a very similar vibe. I'm going to start in verse 1 and read down. David writes again, Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate, and they attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. And may another take his office. May another take his office. The word office here is not some kind of formal office, an elder, a deacon, some kind of magistrate. It refers to someone who has particular responsibilities and particular privileges. And the prayer is that because of the evil this is done, have someone else take what is his, what was this person's, and give it to someone else because they have forfeited it because of their wickedness. That's what David's praying. 
when he says, let someone take his office. Let someone else step into the things that are his, the responsibilities and the privileges because of that person's wickedness. They forfeited it. We need an acquittal. That's confirmed in verse 11. May the creditor seize all that he has and may strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. So there is this principle of wickedness requiring forfeiture of particular privileges and responsibilities. That's the context for the second quotation. Now, turn back with me to Acts chapter 1. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 1. For it is written in the book of Psalms, regarding this incident with Judas and his fate, may his camp become desolate and let, let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So Peter's hermeneutic is comfortable with saying that the Psalms are fulfilled in what has, been, what has transpired. That these Psalms are fulfilled. Judas has acted wickedly in a manner that justified his removal from privileges and responsibilities he had, along with someone else taking over what was his. Taking him being replaced him forfeiting what was his, and that was a share in this ministry because of his wickedness. And so when we usually hear, hear the word fulfill, what we generally think about is what I would call truth maker fulfillment. Truth maker fulfillment. What is truth maker fulfillment? It's some kind of prediction, uh, generally, or a statement, and then something happens that makes that thing true. I predict that it's going to rain tomorrow. It rains tomorrow. It makes what I said true. That's oftentimes what we're talking about when we think fulfillment. And then this thing was fulfilled and the prophecy came true. That's the idea. This is not that. So if that is the only tool you have in your hermeneutical bag, you're going to really struggle both in the Gospels, but particularly in Acts when we're going to see fulfillment in multiple ways. Multiple ways. This is not a truth-maker fulfillment. This is what you might call an exemplary fulfillment. An exemplary fulfillment. That is, we have the whole Old Testament that is pointing forward. It is pointing forward to something. It's part of a story that's linear, that's going in one direction. It's going towards Christ. And certain themes and principles in the Old Testament find their purest and most robust examples in the new. Okay, so going back to Psalm 69, 9, in the context of John chapter 2, zeal for your house will consume me. There is no better example of zeal for the house of God consuming someone um, than Jesus being righteously angry at what's going on. That's why the disciples remember it at that time. And in this case, the reason what has transpired fulfills these Davidic, verse, Davidic verses is that there simply is no pure, there is no better example of someone acting wickedly towards a righteous person with the result that they are made utterly desolate and that what they had should be given to someone else than Judas betraying Jesus. There, it, it, you can't get a higher, more pure, fuller example you cannot get the theme more robustly exemplified than this right here. That is the kind of fulfillment that Peter is talking about here. Even down to the language of habitation, the field of blood from verse 19. Do you remember what Matthew says about that field? It was used for a cemetery. 
Nobody dwelled there. There were no inhabitants. The only inhabitants, so to speak, were the dead. It was a ritually unclean field as a result, bought with ritually unclean money. That would be a sign for generations about what happens to those who oppose God. And so, after laying out how Judas's fate was the fulfillment of Scripture, he kind of applies the action step, you might say, of the second theme. Forfeiting what someone has to someone else. And so here's what he says in verse 21. So, so as a result, that is to say, as a result of what I just said, following from what I just said, one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. And so he lays out three things, three elements that must be met to replace Judas. Number one, it's got to be a man. Number two, that person has to have been around since the very beginning, even in the days of John the Baptist. They had to have been there from the beginning to the end, the full scope of things. And then number three, within that scope of things, having been there the whole time, they had to be particularly present and had witnessed, most importantly, the resurrected Christ so that they could be an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus actually rose physically from the dead. Okay, Male, there the whole time. Male, there the whole time. Witness to the resurrected Lord. But I want to pause here to make a very important point. Why replace Judas? Why not just run lean for a little bit? Why can't the apostolic ministry team run one man lean? Why? The answer is, was hinted at in the first scripture reading. The very end of it. Luke 22, 28 through 30. You are those, Jesus says, talking to the twelve. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The twelve disciples are twelve Jewish men that Jesus intentionally chose after a night of a whole night of prayer. He brought his disciples to him and out of his disciples he handpicked twelve he handpicked 12 Jewish men corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. It is very clear, and as the Gospels progress, that the 12 disciples are a reorganized and restored Israel in microcosm. A, that is to say, a shrunk-down version of the 12 tribes. They're going to sit and judge the 12 tribes. The idea is, obviously, there are 12 apostles, there's 12 tribes. You don't have to do profound analysis to see what Jesus is getting at here. And so the replacement of Judas is not administrative or practical. That's not it, okay? That's not it. When James is executed, James, the son of John, the son of John, the brother of John is executed in Acts chapter 12, they don't replace James. There's no replacement of James. 
we'll see some we'll see some practical concerns come down the pipe in like Acts chapter six, the proto deacon passage, so called, where you know Hellenistic widows getting overlooked in the the the, the tables, the, the table service. Um, so they need to get some folks and organize. This isn't it though. This is a picture of God restoring His people from desolation. It would be restored. It would be the excuse me the restored twelve here who were tasked with restoring the twelve in accordance with the promises of God. Judas is replaced for theological reasons, not for practical reasons. And so that is what they ask God to do. They ask God to do this. Read with me in verses 23 through 26. So they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We know virtually nothing about these two men, but both of them clearly met the qualifications that Peter had just laid out. It says that they were put forward... I mean, sometimes we think that everyone was raising their hand to try to be one of the 12 apostles, but in light of just recent events that had just happened, it's not entirely clear that that was the case. All right, it wasn't like, pick me, pick me, pick me, and they're like, no, sorry, you don't, you know. These men are put forward, but perhaps it was with fear and trembling. We don't know. They were obviously witnesses to horrific events about five five or so weeks ago, and they were given a game plan to kind of evangelistic game plan that had no precedent in Judaism. Regardless, though, both of these men seem to be faithful. They follow the example of Jesus, who before he selected his disciples, he prayed. He said they prayed together. We've already learned that they were devoted to prayer. They're praying for God's leading. They're acknowledging here that he knows the hearts of all men. He knows every thought. He knows every motivation. He knows if someone is fit to do something because he is sovereign over all things. And instead of taking a vote as the determining factor, they cast a lot, which for us would be something like rolling a dice. It's not what it, exactly what it was for them, but something you know, uh, uh, with six sides and what, you know, rolling it. But it was designed to take human intentionality out of things. More than likely, it was like stones, uh, names written on stones and then shaken out of a bag and, and it kind of fell to Matthias or like but the idea, certainly with Proverbs 16.33 in the background, is something like the lot is cast into the lap. These random things are cast into the lap. But it's every turn, every decision is from the Lord. Even the seemingly random, even the seemingly not controlled by anything, things that no human has any, is, is intentionally forming are still, nevertheless, directly from God. Where that die lands when you play your board game is under the sovereignty of God, even when you lose all your gold and money and wood and all your resources, okay? God is sovereign, but you are responsible, okay? And so the lot fell to Matthias, who became 
an apostle. He became an apostle. For the reasons I've already mentioned, the 12 here, the 12, the 12, capital T 12, are different than anyone else who would come later. It is the foundation of the holy apostles and then the New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets, in Ephesians 2.20, who are the foundation of the church. And in Revelation 21.14, again, it is not the 12 tribes of Israel that form the foundation of the heavenly Jerusalem and the city. It's not. It is the 12 apostles of the Lamb whose names are written on the foundation. That doesn't even include Paul, folks. It doesn't say 13 apostles. There is something about this core group as a reorganized and reconstituted Israel over the scope of redemptive history that is not duplicated. Again, James is not replaced when he dies. There is, there is nothing in Scripture that suggests that the kind of authority and the kind of importance that these apostles had was passed on in any kind of way. And so it is this reorganization and restoration of the twelve in light of desolation that's occurred within it that begins this mind-blowing journey in Acts of God fulfilling His promises to His people in ways, in many cases, different from traditional expectations, but glorious under His sovereignty because of this main point. Because God works every detail for the fulfillment of His word and the restoration of His people. Now, when we think about application from a passage like this, the sovereignty of God sticks out. And as we'll see as we progress through Acts, that God works in His goodness and His wisdom to bring about every detail in accordance with with his sovereign plan, and yet he maintains an asymmetrical relationship for culpability for good and evil. Okay, When good things happen, God is to be praised. When bad things happen, God is not the one to blame. He is not morally culpable for evil. He gets the credit for all the good. He stands asymmetrically from a standpoint of culpability between good and evil. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense if you're a creature. But if you're a creator, you don't know what makes sense because you don't know anything about creators to compare it to. God is God and we're not. And over and over and over again, and this is a great example, God is seen to be totally sovereign over the most horrific things. And yet, His goodness is proclaimed over and over and over and over. God, in one way or another, brings about all things, but is not culpable for evil. Remember the first scripture reading, The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom He was betrayed. If that's not both right there, I don't know what is. And so a whole host of things to be said about living under the sovereignty of God as He works all things for the good of those who are called according to His purpose, as He works to redeem a broken creation. Uh, but, I want, but particularly in light of the fate of Judas here and how horrific it was and how it was the fulfillment of Scripture, I want to zoom in on looking at the sovereignty of God over particularly difficult and particularly horrific things in our closing moments here. 
The sovereignty of God for many people is incredible comfort. And I think it should be. And there are other people for whom the sovereignty of God is an incredible, incredible struggle. Because when they hear about the sovereignty of God over all things, what their mind goes to is the painful and devastating things that have happened in their life. And it runs the whole gamut. Things that have happened to me in my past that have affected me for the rest of my life. Losses that I've experienced. Horrible things that have happened to me. Disasters. And that person is going to say, that's part of the plan? It seems cruel. It seems cruel. And with a thousand caveats about every different situation and not a desire to give any kind of simplistic answer, here's what I want to say. I want to say, if that's the response, is I think it does seem cruel. I think you're right. I think it does seem I think you're justified in the conclusion that it seems cruel. So let's, let's weep for what's happened. Let's weep. Let's not try to dress it up. But here's the question you'll need to ask. Does it follow from God seeming to act in cruel ways that there's reason to believe He's actually being cruel? I don't doubt that it seems cruel. I don't doubt that certain evil seems pointless. Don't doubt it. I know it seems that way. But you are not entitled to the inference from it seems like X to X. Let me get an example. I used to play a lot of chess. I used to be good. Now I'm horrible. I remember getting a chess book. I still have it. It's in my office, actually. It's on the floor right now. Tra chest, traps, and zaps. How to set them and how to avoid them. And these were games played by grandmasters and stuff. And it was just these, these amazing... I need to give it to someone who probably actually use it. Some chess players here. I remember reading that book and kind of the... You know, you kind of see the sequence of moves and where, the, where the, these masters are putting the pieces. And I remember explicitly in many, many cases going, Oh! That is a horrible move. That's a horrible move. Look what's going to happen. Your piece is going to get captured. Then a couple moves later, I'm like, oh, that was a pretty good move. <laughs> Got me. And then there are other times where I was like, ooh, that was a killer move by this guy. A couple moves later, ooh. That actually is what sunk him. And here's what I started realizing as I watched chess masters play. Is that what seemed to me to be a very bad move was very frequently not a bad move. But it didn't change the fact that it seemed to me that it was. Okay? What I started to realize is because they're playing at such a high level... I wouldn't recognize a bad move if they actually even made one. 
The only way that you can move from God seems cruel to therefore God probably is cruel is if you believe you are a cosmic chess master too, and you are not. That is not a simplistic answer for your pain. Please do not hear me saying that. Please do not hear me saying that. But all of us can look at our lives, and, and, and certainly some have far more horrific cases than others, and say, look at this bad, this sure seemed like a bad move, this sure seemed like a bad move, this sure seemed like a bad move, and I want to say is, I know they seem like bad moves. So let's weep with those who weep, but let's be careful what, we, what conclusions we draw from it seems like a bad move. Genesis 50-20, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God is working to checkmate evil in a cosmic story of redemption that includes your vindication and your glorification. And so as we think about evil under the sovereignty of God, we must consider it not only in conjunction with His goodness that is proclaimed over and over and over, but also with His knowledge and His power, which if you put them together is something like this, divine competence. Divine competence. Maybe that's a new category for you to think in. Do you believe that God is cosmically competent, redemptively competent, or do you think He's a fumbler? And if you believe He's competent, are you struggling with God's sovereignty over evil and brokenness because He is playing redemptive chess over thousands of years instead of playing personal tic-tac-toe in your life? The gospel promises prosperity. The gospel promises health. The gospel promises everything you imagine coming true. It does, but not now. And that's where the prosperity gospel goes wrong. Not in prosperity. It's that the kingdom hasn't fully come yet. There one day you will walk. And you will, you, you, will, you will take up wings like eagles. There will be no cancer. You will prosper. Everything that has happened bad will be undone. It will be glorious. But we're not going to be able to see that now. And in fact, I would say if you're coming along someone who has experienced a lot of suffering, I would be, I would be very careful trying to say, oh, well, here's the silver lining. Trying to bail out God, you know. Well, here's probably why it happened. You, know, you have no idea. Because sometimes you're not going to know. And the truth is, even when you can say, oh, I see why God did that in retrospect, there's likely hundred other reasons you didn't know about. So we have to be humble as we consider these things. We have to trust God in His goodness, but also His competence. And so as we continue through Acts, I think we'll see again and again God working to build His church through the good and through the bad. I hope it will be encouraging to us personally and corporately as we encounter both the good and the bad in our own hearts and our own lives. So that we can say, not my will, but your will be done. Let your kingdom come. I trust in your, goodnesses, your goodness. I trust in the promises. I trust in your competence. And even when I see something that looks like a really bad move, I realize I'm not in even a position to evaluate such things. And so I trust. Even when it means my life looks different than the one I had written for myself, 
I trust your goodness because you're a sovereign God who is working for my good and your glory. Let's pray. God, cause our hearts to look beyond our pain and our suffering and our pasts, which can so quickly shrink down our perspective. Help us grieve evil and loss that we've experienced. Help us not try to just kind of move on and say these things aren't painful or they're not struggles, but that we would call it like it is and say, oh, this seems so hard. We see this in the Psalms so often. What are you doing, God? And yet, we acknowledge that you are in control and that you are loving and that you love us and that you are working So we ask you to give us the humility and even the courage to surrender our dreams of what we want our lives to be sometimes. We pray that you would help us be kingdom-minded. Even when we don't play the role in the kingdom that we want to play. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain us with grace and help form in us identities that are unshakable in light of our union with a resurrected and ascended Christ. Help us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.